Thank you for tuning in. As citizens, we look up to organizations with a great mission. And as consumers, we pay up for goods and services that support great missions. And despite the incredible work we do day in and day out as practicing professionals, there's just something extraordinarily attractive about serving and sharing our specialized knowledge with others during their times of greatest need, especially those who would otherwise be left behind, whether across town or around the world. That's part of both the business and the mission of Miyamoto International, and our guest today is Kit Miyamoto, Global CEO of Miyamoto International and President of Miyamoto Global Disaster Relief. The work of Kit and his team of structural and earthquake resiliency engineers and support specialists, about 250 of them across more than 20 offices, didn't just happen. It happened through design and a sincere desire to make the world a better, safer place. In this episode, we walk through how it all started, what critical decisions were made, and what it looks like today to run a business with a bona fide social agenda, and how we can begin to do so ourselves. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Kit Miyamoto, Global CEO of Miyamoto International and President of Miyamoto Relief. And we'll be talking about building a successful business with a strong social agenda. Welcome to the podcast, Kit. Thanks, Peter. Well, I'm thrilled that you're here. Um, and so listeners can have some background. For several years before we met, I had heard about you and your firm mm -hmm. um, primarily through your engineering relief work, because mm -hmm. you know, at the time I was involved with um, relief and development work, um, but it was on the side of my professional life. And mm -hmm. I was just intrigued by the connection of your philanthropic work with your business uh -huh. work and the overall mission. Um, so fast forwarding, we've got a chance to meet for the first time live uh, last yep. fall at the AEC Elevate conference. Um, and more recently, earlier this year, I was able to participate in one of your projects, an irrigation mm -hmm. project in Ethiopia. And so I've got more uh, information yep. on what you do and why you do it, but mm -hmm. it only... Um, it only makes me want to know more. So that's, we'll get into that in the podcast today. But okay. before we do so, can you just share yeah. a little bit about you, uh, your firm, and what brought you to where you are today? Sure. Well, I was born in Tokyo, Japan. And uh, after I graduated from high school, I decided to play for Dallas Cowboys. So I told my mom and dad, said, oh, I got to go now. Where are you going? United States. <laughs> that's how it started. So... Well, my family is in, in Japan, and um, uh, you know, I, I played for a couple of years in college, and uh, I was pretty good, but unfortunately, I blew my knee, so I guess there's no more uh, cowboys, and my plan B was being a structural engineer. That's how I started from there, 
And back in 1991, I joined a company. It's called Marshiff and Associates. It's a small company, about five people in a, in a Sacramento, California. And by, by 97, the, uh, Mr. Schaefer decided to retire, and he asked me to take over the company. That's how we started from there. Then, and uh, um, you know, thing was the uh, we want to do just more than uh, we want to be impactful. You know, I mean, as an engine companies, you know, we can be very impactful, right? And being a Sacramento, California, being a five-man company, they do a whole bunch of school projects and stuff like that. It was a very impactful job, was. But we want to have a global impact. That's what we want to do. We want to help people. We want to not only makes this country safer and better, but also we want to go to places where the, we can share our knowledge and technology to, to people who may have less information than we do. So that's why that we changed our company name to Miyamoto International when we opened an office in LA. And uh, it was like a 2001 or two. And uh, our mission is still the same. You know, we want to make the world a better, safer place. It's been there from day one. And we don't have a global impact. Same vision, same mission for since day one. And uh, once we started having that type of the articulation of the mission and the vision, it's, um, it's essentially the, uh, you, uh, we start attracting a similar type of people, you know, very creative, mission-oriented, purpose-driven, and uh, entrepreneurial, creative, different, one of the different things, that kind of people we attract to it, you know, which is actually kind of, those characteristics is kind of rare for structural engineers, by the way. We were, you know, usually we're not like that, you know, but we tend to attract the, that type of, a, I guess you could say, oddballs per se. So we have a 200, 250 of them now over the world, about uh, 22 different office locations from a, throughout, from, a, from a Europe, from a Milan to Turkey, to, uh, uh, to Nepal, to New Zealand, Japan, Bangkok, over the, obviously California, we have eight different offices, and Nevada, and Washington, D.C., and uh, down uh, Mexico City, to all the way down to Colombia, to Haiti, to Puerto Rico. So that's where we're it, today. So, but if I look on a map, your offices seem to just follow fault lines. Oh, yeah, most exactly. And, and so, I mean, that's just the manifestation of, you know, structural engineers doing earthquake work. Mm -hmm. working in a places that are more susceptible or most susceptible to earthquakes. So, I, I mean, but that, so that's today and over the, you know, the last decade or two, but when you took over the firm or, or, you know, transitioned into a leadership role, I mean, what was it like changing the culture? I mean, did it happen overnight? I mean, so you went from building schools to we want to have more of an impactful global footprint and attract different types of structural engineers. I mean, how quickly did that transition happen um, for you to go from a, you know, probably a good solid mission uh, focused firm in schools to mission focused in earthquake engineering around the world? So it was a difficult process, no question, because at first uh, back in 97, five main company, right? And it, we grew re really rapidly to maybe up to 30 some people in Sacramento, California. We become fairly decent sized structure engine company in Sacramento. And uh, our first, you know, my first uh, initiative is open LA office. Many people didn't like that because that's not a reason they join a company. Many like a local they, they want to kind of work for a local company kind of thing and it suddenly become this, you know, Southern California, Sacramento kind of company. And uh, back then it was not easy. Probably I lost uh, 
I counted about maybe 11 people, you know, from out of 30. That's a lot, right? Because they did not agree on that vision or strategies. But that's okay. You're not just part of a process. There's nothing wrong with them or nothing wrong with me. It's just a difference of opinion, which is completely okay. So now that, uh, you know, Southern California become a big thing. The reason we did that is, is the, uh, just compete in a smaller market like a Sacramento is a very difficult thing to do. You know, you want to go different places to compete, you know, to diversify the essentially the uh, locations. And for the business point of view, that's very important, right? You don't want to put all the eggs in that one place, one city or one expertise. You want to have a diversification of it. So LA is the first expansion in Orange County and San Diego, then San Francisco, San Jose, the, uh, you know, all those places we basically open office along the way for the, uh, is coming up about five years time after that. And uh, so it's a, it's a really the, the motivations of the diversification of it. And who was really helpful. I mean, uh, when the market collapsed in 2008, nine-ish, and we were able to balance the workload between offices because some cities are busier than others. And some market sector is you know, more robust than others or weaker than others. So we can balance throughout. So we didn't have to lay off actually almost none. Actually at, uh, at the same time, 2010, there's a Haitian earthquake happen. So then, you know, we, our company just, just exploded at the time. So how, so, but just to talk about the, the transition. So you went from a six person firm up to a 30, and then you sort of transitioned again into multi offices throughout California, right. but, and also transitioned the mission at the time. So there's, there's obviously a lot of conviction and hard work that went into doing that. I mean, would you say that yeah. you were the driving force or did you have a team of people who, we're doing, I mean, what, what was the inner force that said, I'm going to push through the resistance. And then, again, like I said, there's not bad people around. It's just a change of plan going, you know, regional, opening new offices and, and uh-huh. shifting the mission. But was it just like an inner drive to push through all the barriers and the resistance? Or did you have a team of people you could rely on to help? Oh, most sort of definitely. And a core of people, when I said the five people, the core of it, you know, either one, two retired about, uh, all of them still with us, you know, so we, the core team has always stayed same. It's all, obviously we evolved over the years and the function evolved o- over the years. And, uh, but uh, it's definitely the team of people who actually believe in that particular mission and strategies, essentially, you know, then uh, same time we are attracting that kind of people too. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. how process is like that. It's just processed about obviously as a, CEO and uh, president, I'm, I, I was one, obviously, cast the vision. You know, that's something I cannot delegate to anyone. There's no way you get to do your cast the vision. That's one thing you cannot delegate as a leader. So once that happens, vision is casted. Strategy is, well, strategy we build with this team, obviously, how to go about it, right? You know, and set up the goals. That's, team will can do that. But the vision and mission have to come from like within of the leader, that's for sure. So that's how we, Kind of whole process kind of settled from like that. All right. So, so you know, a decade goes by. You, you're you're expanding. You've adjusted the mission, and then you mention there's an earthquake in Haiti. I mean, what? That's right. What what brought you there, and what how how does that tie into your your business to say there's an earthquake in Haiti? That's where we're going to go. Well, uh, around 2000, actually five, about five years before the Haitian earthquake, the uh, we started getting involved in uh, so-called international development work, uh, which means like say um, World Bank, 
and uh, you know people like that as a clients, right? And uh, you you work with them in international scenes. We got into that because that's our desire from day one. That's what we want to do. You know, we don't exactly how to do it. We don't know how we started, but that was one desire we had. So once you have a desire, things happen naturally. You know, but you have to be sincere about it. And you have to do something about much more than making money. It has to be something much, much bigger than that. So you have a desire to do something good out there, right? Then you meet some people. You start meeting people, you know, and you start meeting people in, uh, like even engineering associations, you know, you start meeting people who have a connections like that. So first project we had was in Romania in 2000, I think it was a four or five. It's, it was a funded by a World Bank project. We don't know anything about international project at all. But uh, we, you know, our, our job is to uh, uh, do a quality control of like 80 different schools and the governmental buildings in uh, Romania. And my, my mentor at the time, a guy named Peter Yadav, he told me, hey, kid, you got to go out there, meet some clients, close the deal. If you don't go there, you don't get it. I said, really? It's really expensive to go out there because at the time we were a pretty small company, right? Maybe we have, I don't know, 30 people, maybe 40, I don't know, something like that. It's a small, com small company then. And I said, all right, it's really expensive. We just went out there. I met the, the, this Romanian government. <laughs> and I made a pitch. And they said, okay, you're hired. That's how we started. Then uh, coming 2008, there was the Sichuan earthquake in China, which killed the several tens of thousands of people. No one knows exactly how many. But one tragic about that event was many schools collapsed. And unfortunately, it happened on Monday afternoon. The school class, you know, they're in a full session. And thousands, thousands, thousands of kids die. Even I visit, I wasn't a visit all the schools, maybe visit two, three places. Those are pretty big schools, you know, three, four, five story buildings, concrete structure, complete collapse. And you know, there's a several thousand kids were in there, completely buried, you know. So that really, really um, came to our attention. You know what? You know, gosh, you know, we got to do something about this thing because those construction is well so bad but there's no need to collapse like that there's a little things you can do with the building structure it just makes a huge difference you know structure engineers listen to this they know it's it just little detailings of the, the rebars and the hoops and little things like that just just make a gigantic difference it doesn't even add a cost to it you know which is just, just more the like knowledge that you have your day-to-day -day regular bread and butter structural yeah. engineering yeah applied differently would have literally saved hundreds if not thousands of children's lives. Oh, most definitely. I mean, that was like a really, uh, you know, shocking, eye-opening event for our company. So that was 2008, right? Then uh, uh, coming 2009, we hired the, uh, this branding company. Branding company is very interesting people, you know. They actually, they, they come from uh, Seattle and uh, they not only just uh, create so-called marketing material, it's not like that. They deep dive into identifying who we really are. What is our desire? What's our strength? How clients see it? How staff sees it? It was a pretty big exercise we did. It took us like six months or something. But by 2009, there is a very articulate, this uh, whole branding language set up in a company. It was just only, you know, one page long, some image and stuff like that. But it's, a, it's like a consensus kind of a document about what we're about, how we're gonna go about it. Much more articulate than ever before, right? 
and talking about making the world a better place and, um, you know, save lives, you know, that kind of things, you know, a lot, lot of those good things in there. Then, year after 2010, Haitian earthquake happened, killed 300,000 people, destroyed about 200,000 buildings in the Port-au-Prince, Haiti, right? So for us, there's no even question we're going to go there. So we went there. And um, then everything started from there. Then uh, we know the, uh, so we've been, we've been built this up. It's not like uh, it was surprised us. We built this over the years since, uh, you know, 2005 at the time, right? About the, uh, our desire, our mission, our strength. We articulate the, all the things in 2009, one year before. So when we showed up, it was a, I don't say it's easy, it's very it's challenging, but it was a natural for us. Mm -hmm. How to communicate it how to deal with the UN agencies, how to deal with the US uh, armed forces that are there, how to deal with the Haitian uh, government, people, you know, it was a clear line of how to go about them. And also the uh, many engineering companies came to the Haiti, but there are many that came to go, you know, they show up, do some assessment and help a little bit in a good, in a goodwill, which is great, right? But then no one stayed in, no one stayed in. Our case is because this is our vision, our mission. So we stayed, we stayed, we stayed, we learned, we become Haitian. You know, personally, I was living there for three years, really almost full-time basis. We become a Haitian company. So, so okay, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. So when you say we just, we saw, we knew our vision inside and out. We know not just what our why was, but we know who we were because that generates the why. And we see this on the news. I mean, did you have a contract with with no. USAID, you, so when you say you showed up, you just showed up. So what, what, can you just walk through that? And then I want to get into, you know, who, you know, came to go and then the difference between, you know, relief efforts and rehabilitation and development. But, um, so you just showed up, so we just hop on a plane and then where do well, no. you just like, just share what happened? Like, well, that's sure, sure. So again, everything needs to be built up, right? You can just say, I'm gonna show up today, I'm gonna to become a hero. It doesn't work that way, you know? If you're gonna do something meaningful, you have to build this up. So back in 2008, we were invited to go to the uh, El Salvador. And that was a little conference organized by the, at the Pan-American Development Foundation. That's one of our nonprofit NGOs, funded by USA, USAID. And um, uh, so we met those people and they asked us to talk about the uh, Sichuan earthquake so they knew about our existence and from there that we actually went to dc and we met several people from the world bank and usid and people like that right we didn't know exactly what does that mean really we have some certain couple of projects going on but we didn't know exactly what does that mean but to come in 2008 when this happened so we knew some people in a padf pan american foundation so we called them hey do you need some help it's a huge Technical disaster. It's an urban disaster. It's not like uh, it's a very highly technical disaster in urban earthquake like that, right? And they said, "Well, we have a uh, one seat available. We are wondering either you or a medical doctor, and we will get back to you." And they call us back one day after. You know what? I think we're going to take a structural engineer, you guys, because um, I think we get the. They have a lot of. Uh, NGOs show up with the medical doctors that seems to get taken care of, but no one's bringing a structural engineer. And I'm like, okay, excellent. That's how it started. And uh, it, was, it was pretty adventurous. You know, we, we could not fly into the uh, Port-au-Prince, so we flew into the Dominican Republic. And uh, from there, we overland, drive over into the uh, 
Port-au-Prince. It was like, uh, you know, maybe a few days after. So it's, it's a super chaotic time still. So we didn't, we didn't know exactly what to expect, you know. Our first mission was the, uh, essentially the Haitian government wanted us to take a look at their collapsed presidential palace and the finance ministry's uh, office. I mean, their ministry buildings. So we started to analyzing those damage of this major public infrastructure they had. So that's how we start start understanding of the whole Haitian disaster context. And then did, right you, after, did, did you have a contract at that point or you're just going no. on spec to sort of, you're, you're, you're yeah. helping. I, I've got some information. And so you're still, this is just part of your mission. We're drawn to go there. We used our connections and yeah. we got on the plane. And now you're yeah. running around looking right. at government buildings just so they don't right. fall now. Right. Then after that, uh, we, that's right, we have no contract. We have no money there, right? We spend no money. Then at the, uh, the needs are tremendous. So we, uh, we start flying the uh, engineers from California, uh, our people, into the Haiti, right? First a quarter, uh, so which means by January is the earthquake. So by March or April, I, I rack up almost like uh, $400,000 in expense. And I clearly remember one of our board of directors, our, our board of uh, directors all external, by the way, not the staff members, external. He called me up and said, kid, you're making a big, big mistake. I know you're a CEO. I know you're the major shareholder, but we could still fire you. <laughs> so you better have a return of investment. You know, there's investors in this involved. And I told him, don't worry about it. It will happen. It shall happen. And uh, uh, one of the UN agencies, you know, they gave us a little letter of the so-called, hey, we, we get your contract somehow kind of letter. <laughs> so we started flying a lot and just because what they need to do is damage assessment. No one was doing a coordinate damage assessment at all, mm -hmm. which is the most critical part of it, to understand the damage, to understand the strategy as the uh, recovery effort. So no one was doing that. So we started training like uh, 700 Haitian engineers throughout. Then uh, eventually, you know, they assessed the 430,000 objects in the whole, whole island. And we got paid, and uh, it's actually that uh, we didn't know we we're gonna make money or not, but become one of a uh, uh, very profitable operation we had over the years. And we still have a, a business there, Yamato Haiti, the manage, you know, engineer, all the uh, Haitian engineers and Haitian managers still man our uh, uh, business out there. Everybody left though, there's no funding for things like this, right? But as a business, we can stay because we're Haitian business. We work for private sector, we work for the government, we work for the international agencies. I think that's a beauty of a business, like business, you know, you know, we can stay. So, because long-term commitment is critical. If you try to show up, no leave, or if you just try to invest to some quick money in and out, I think many people have very short-term, this vision about it. Right, know, it seems like your, your vision was always development. I mean, it's it very specific. I picked up on, you were training the Haitian engineers to do the assessments. It's right. like you were there to serve and not just, hey, there's a relief effort. We're going to assess the situation and kind of go back home, which, you know, working on relief efforts when there's dire need is absolutely important, but there's a distinct difference between relief, rehabilitation, getting things up to speed and then a development project, which takes a lot of, you know, training and understanding and, 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 and investment um, in the That's human right. side. Um, but right. it seems like, you know, relief efforts are fabulous, but you were almost from the start more interested or as interested in the development work. You know, how do you build the capacity of the places that you're serving? That's super critical part of it. I mean, that, uh, you know, many engineers come in and go, right? So our case is, uh, I remember that clearly ASCE, the American Society of Civil Engineers, 
call me at the 2010-ish and say, hey, kid, I have 2,000 American engineers just come down to you right now. Just yet, the, you know, they're coming down to, they can assess everything right on the spot. And uh, I thought about it. I talked to the uh, uh, minister about uh, public works in Haiti and all that. And uh, we decided to reject the offer because if they show up, the Haitian engineers can't learn, you know? They're, this is the opportunity the Haitian engineers can learn what went wrong. They have their own assessment. They get paid, they get paid too. If the free engineers show up, how the engineers can make a living in Haiti? You know, it really didn't make sense to me. So it took a little more time, I think. It took the, the little more effort, you know, tremendous effort doing that. But it was definitely the uh, better way. And I think it's uh, made a huge difference in Haiti today. And after that, we trained almost 7,000 Haitian masons, by the way. And I used the, uh, uh, hired a whole bunch of small businesses in Haiti to reconstruct, you know, our company alone, almost 12,000 houses out there. And a massive amount of training from our masons to uh, um, homeowners, men and women, everybody. And um, so today, if you go to Port-au-Prince, you know, believe it or not, the even the informal housing settlement area, you're going to see the uh, so-called ACI 318 details, you know, this confinement and spacing, actually fairly decent. It's not perfect, but it's definitely much, much better than what they had before. So it's a, uh, that's why the capacity building is critical. That's why you don't have a shortcut to say, hey, let's send a whole bunch of uh, American engineers or Japanese engineers and solve the issues. No, let's have them to solve the issues. That's it. Uh, a little more challenging, but I think the long-term impact is just tremendous. So that's yeah. our basically our mantra. So when we open office you know, globally, we don't, we don't really send American engineers at all. We basically, because there's a, every country has a just you know, great business engineering technical capacity exists, just tap into that and kind of work with them. That's our approach to this right. day. And there's a whole different discussion to go deeper into really the theory and the, um, and the approach to really long-term development work um, and, and the benefits of that, um, which you're living. But how, I mean, so how do you separate or do you separate your philanthropic mission from your business mission? I mean, do you do projects that aren't directly a result of, you know, sort of disaster relief engineering? I mean, do you do sort of conventional projects too? Like you Greenfield, oh. you want to build project X? I mean, what is your mix of projects sort of conventional, I'll, I'll, I'll term like conventional um, structural engineering versus um, work in the developing world or in areas that have been impacted by loss? Well, right now, 80% is normal structure engineering work and 20% is development kind of work. And 80%, I mean, at the, in the California offices, pretty much, you know, we have a office in the major cities, right? From Sacramento all the way down to San Diego. And uh, basically we do hospitals, schools, you know, and uh, commercial buildings, residential buildings, you name it, just like the, uh, the normal people. <laughs> Put this way, okay. But the beauty of that is uh, this: the foundation of a company, right? That te techn technological this uh, uh, excellence, and that what we have in California, in a sense, we export that, you know, knowledge. That's what we do. Uh, that's our. Uh, we are, in a sense, export business in a way, you know, of the knowledge. And we did win the uh, presidential, so what is it? The EE award. That's the. Uh, uh, recognize the export of these uh, services uh, globally, you know. But uh, answer your question about the, uh, this, how this nonprofit and a 
for-profit business works. So here's how I see this way. If you see the society, you know, their needs, right, in a community or country or cities or whatever, the regional needs, certain percentage of it, let's say 90%, 95%, there's a money, there's a funding, either from a public or private sector, you know, and you can work with that. But segment of society, there's no money at all, neither from private sector investment, either from a government investment, none of it. So what are we going to do? Because our mission is that we're going to make that better for everyone, right? Just not only for people who have money. So basically what we do is that we generate the funding for that segment of our society. And that's how we basically tackle as a, that's how we address that in a wholesome way, in a way, you know? No one left behind in, in a sense. So for, for example, in Haiti, uh, first project, Miyamoto Relief, which we formed right after Haitian event. And uh, Miyamoto Relief, uh, 501c3 nonprofit organization, right? And, um, um, and we basically had to raise money in, from companies in California and also Haitian private sector and some embassies, like Japanese embassy give us funds. And we, we basically identified the, uh, uh, this school, it's public school in Haiti, and which is in a place called City Soleil, which is a super dangerous, it's a Haiti a poor place, but this is a place poorer than normal Haiti place. Very dangerous, it's called Red Zone, no UN agencies, no one can even allow to go there. So we saw this public school, which is complete sit and empty because damaged, about 1,500 kids, study in little makeup shack right in front of this class, you know, schools. We said, well, this is ridiculous. You know, we got raised money. So we raised about somewhere between half a million dollars, something like that nature. We Just hired from a- you kind of connecting with people saying, hey, we have this project where you fund yeah. it through our nonprofit, not our, That's not right. our for-profit company who might be doing work for the World Bank or whatever as a, like a, That's right. a project. But this is where no one, no, no money's touching this but we want to go here just because there's no money. We'll reach our contacts. We, we want to do a project here just because it's the right thing to do or, or we feel driven to do it and we'll go find the money. That's right. And uh, I think that the, what was great was our Miyamoto International Haiti brand. It was a very strong brand, brand by then, you know, everybody trusts our brand, right. As a business. And then we started the Miyamoto global disaster relief components that essentially brand helped this, this nonprofit in a way. And especially Haitian private sectors, there are different families there. And uh, I don't think till, that was like a first time ever, you know, since 1806, I don't know if it's true or not, but all the families got together to, for common cause, you know, because they see, they saw us like a vehicle. We don't cheat, obviously. Someone neutral, very technical. Technical is a neutral, right? No political ambitious, none of that. So that we become vehicle for them to get things done, in a sense. So that was actually beautiful projects. And um, that project uh, actually won the ENI Best Global Project of the Year at that time. And um, um, today, interesting part of it, I, we visit there, uh, Sabine Cast, our um, executive director of um, Yamato Relief, and myself visited the site a year ago after whatever, five years, you know, when it's down, right? And we, we didn't know what to expect because usually, you know, project like that going down, going down right after you leave. Unbelievable. Places are all painted anew, got the landscape going on, has the 20 laptops we donated, still functional. They got Wi-Fi going on. It just 
I couldn't believe it. We just couldn't believe it because that was like at least we expected because we thought something could happen to, you know, stuff like that. Because the reason is a community driven approach. We didn't just show up and a whole bunch of foreigners give money. It's money also came from our communities too. You know, developer, I mean, uh, Haitian private sectors and stuff like that. And we used the Haitian engineers, Haitian contractors. It was a community project, essentially. We're in a kind of behind the scenes almost. So right. it was well, I mean, ownership, uh, ownership. Yeah, I mean, that's just a perfect example of asset-based community development and that you caring and going and really just being a source of empowerment and inspiration. And if all these years later, there's that sense of pride Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's just, you know, caring and, and truly like taking it to the, even just loving people and giving them an opportunity. It's just, it, it, it's paid back volumes, um, but it's not money. It's, it's, oh. it's paid back in, in, in talk about making a difference in, in the lives and families of that entire area. And today that community taking leadership now. They actually, that community, City Soleil, I told you, poorest poor, most criminal ridden place, right? They raise money. They raised the hundreds of thousands of dollars to build in the community library today. So they asked us to kind of be in a part in the help. So we got a small part of it, you know, but we are, we not driven it. They're the one that driver's seat. So that's a huge, huge differences. And I think that uh, that particular projects and, you know, school projects, I think give a lot of confidence. The fact is, Hey, you know, we're the leaders, we should do this. We can do it. Right. Because in development work, you actually want to work yourself out of the job. You, you want to exactly. not be needed one day because that, that's that's right. your, if, if, if you're always needed, you've created a system of, of entitlement or handouts and instead of hand ups and empowerment. So you actually want to be able to not be needed one day other than, hey, thanks for coming. We love you. Let's, you know, we'll, we're going to celebrate you, but we don't really need you anymore. That's right. We, we that's just right. really are appreciative of you. Yeah. So how, yeah. how do you so if you have, you know, 80 percent regular projects and 20% um, relief, you know, work through Miyamoto relief. Do your employees, do, do they get to work? You know, how, how do you choose who gets to work on what? Is it a different set of employees? Sure. I mean, how, if someone comes in, do they say, Hey, every, every few years I get a chance to work on one of these, you know, relief projects in house and I don't have to do it on the side. I mean, how does that work well, internally? Yeah. Let me kind of clarify. So out of us, a hundred projects, 80 are, um, uh, so-called normal project, right? Structure engineering projects. And 20 are so-called international development projects. That's also for profit too, not okay, the right. non-profit work. Non-profit works on top of that. You Correct. Know? So that's the basically what we do. So questions of how we select the people. Well, obviously the, uh, uh, not everybody working on that kind of projects, right? However, uh, we do a few things. One is the, um, uh, some of the uh, engineers, they are really, movable they want to go this place you know like i as i said before this call this guy named mark you know he he decided to stay in uh puerto rico you know and right now in this condition and um because of the uh, you know he's very movable and um, so people who love the traveling who love to have a uh, engineering expertise who love traveling it's definitely going to fit into this kind of work work per se right but also the uh, many young engineers we join you know who join our companies company companies you know and uh, they desire to do things like that and sometimes especially younger engineers very difficult to assign some projects overseas because those are main you know expertise kind of work right so we create actually a program called a uh, uh, global reach essentially the uh, anyone the uh, donate uh, uh, certain money to the Myanmar relief you know Myanmar international pays the, the whole salary and expense and everything 
and uh, take the uh, one week, so-called per se volunteer, or it's not volunteering because they get paid, but uh, since they donate money from Yemen Relief, they can, you know, thousand bucks, they can go to the place, they can help others. So we made a program like that. So, so and that, that's just not your internal employees. That's if I work in ABC company, I can basically donate $1,000 and be able to go a week with your <laughs> this firm? Quarter, or? No, this one from Yemen International staff only. Okay, all right. Because <laughs> we were paying the salary and everything, right? Right. But gotcha. Peter, you went, you went to Oma Valley in Ethiopia. So answer the question, any companies, any engineers can definitely empower with Myanmar Relief. Just no question about it. Yes, this Myanmar Relief. So I'm talking about two different things. Right. Global reach is inside of a Myanmar International Inc. program. But the Myanmar Relief program, yes, open to every single people and ex expert, uh, experts and everybody in the world, essentially. Do you have any, any future plans? Um, I know recently with the earthquake in, um, in Puerto Rico, you, you yeah. went there and I know you were personally there for a while. I mean, what, 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 is, what is happening on the ground now? Is, it, and is that very similar to the, the Haitian project you spoke mm. about in 2010? It's, uh, yeah, I guess in, it's obviously, you know, Puerto Rico is not Haiti. It's definitely the part about, you know, American territory and much more uh, advanced per se, right? And they use the international building code like we do. And the engineer's quality is definitely, it's, well, it's equivalent to what we see in the U.S. put this way. But uh, only thing is the, uh, they go through huge disasters, the hurricanes and all the time. But this earthquake was the first time in 100 years. So societies, governments, they were not really ready for that. It's different from a hurricane. Hurricane, there is a warning, there's a start, there's a finish. Earthquake, no. It's kind of happens and aftershocks and maybe big one coming through, no one knows. So it's a completely different setups. So there's an incredible amount of social unrest and the people left, people fled. And um, uh, our job right now is the assess the, all those houses. There are thousands thousands of houses have been damaged, by the way. Many minor damages that can be repaired really quickly and get back to safer you know, house again. And we are basically trying to set up the uh, system where the um, uh, FEMA funding can be used, assess the house really rapidly to estimate the cost of a repair so the contractor can repair those things really fast. And there's a FEMA funding for this. So we are, we're basically helping that realm. Because temptation is usually, if the earthquake damage house, people don't take it down. That's what they will do. But there's, if once take it down, there's two issues you have. One, there is no FEMA funding to rebuild complete house. No, there's no funding like that. So once that the house came out, it's gone, it almost mission impossible to build back the house there. And uh, especially the case of uh, Puerto Rico, where the population is, has been always an issue, you know? 10 years ago, they have a 4 million people. Today, only 3 million people. They lost people from hurricanes and earthquakes. They also lost more. So it's definitely yet they're really important to repair these houses to safe condition. And, so and is, is the back. difference because in the U.S. In, in general, it's, you know, FEMA can come in and they can demolish, they can get the, everything, the ground ready, but then you would theoretically tap an insurance policy and they'll come in and rebuild your house. But maybe in Puerto Rico, we don't have that insurance aspect. So FEMA can't get into the rebuilding because they're just not set up for it? Well, uh, I think that if people have a mortgages, they usually come with the insurance actually, you know? So they, I don't know exactly what coverage they have actually. I don't know that. Mm -hmm. But one right, thing they, I they do. Might, yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, but the problem is that uh, if the depopulation going on, once the house go down, people leave. People leave to United States. You know, that's at the really not the issue they're actually facing there. And um, it's a beautiful island, beautiful culture. And I, I mean, people are very passionate about island. I think we feel like we can provide this information so they can make the really sound judgment if they should repair or leave. You know, but our job is not decide for them. Our job is to provide technical information to how to repair per IBC, per you know U.S. code how to do that, how to repair it. Because our estimate is uh, usual typical repair will be less than about ten to $20,000 to repair, probably less than that, and takes about eight weeks of time. That's pretty much average you know, house that repair should be done. And 90% of houses can be repaired. And uh, there's a FEMA funding up to $35,000 per household do things like that. So there's definitely opportunity in the funding to do things like that, right? So we, we will try to facilitate the process. We are working with both uh, uh, municipalities and the government, and also with the obviously people directly out there. So this is actually to us is a very important mission to me. It's a different context from a Haitian one. You know, Haitian one is really the build capacity and all that. This is more like how we can actually keep people in the island. You know, it's a it's a sad to see the uh, depopulation of such a beautiful place. Yeah, interesting. Just the whole different aspects and and how and how you can come in and help with the technical expertise in the different problems that you're yeah. trying to solve. Yeah, I, I, I mean, technical. I mean, Portugal again. There's there's a plenty of great engineers, great you know university institutes, and there's a license to them, same as ours, right? It's not about more like technical aspect. It's more like uh, knowing what happened to past disasters in different places that so-called success and failures. I think that's something we can try to basically translate that information essentially. That's what we try to do. Mm -hmm. Right. So will you, in addition to your international work, which ties in with your offices and your business model, I mean, you, you also do local work. So you, and I'm, I'm aware of, but I don't know the details. What, what is the night of a thousand drawings? Because I know you've done that in different parts of California in your offices. Can you like, can you share what that is and how you got involved with it and, and what, what, what your, what, what, what the goal is? Sure. Night of a thousand drawings. So, uh, so you see that Miyamoto global disaster relief is more like a formulate toward a kind of international disasters, right? In the development countries and so on. But there's, you know, we, we just look, look, look up to our country, you know, even place like LA or Sacramento, San Francisco, there's a tremendous amount of needs also exist. And um, uh, so a couple of years ago, we saw the school. It was an inner city school in LA. They didn't have a music program. And we figured that about 30,000 bucks, they can have a whole music instrument board and they can set up the music program in this school, charter school, right? So that's say, hey, you know, we can do something about how you're going to do. And uh, our executive director, Sabine Cast, uh, with, with Miyamoto Global Disaster Relief, she organized events called Night of 1000 Drawings in South Africa, like, I don't know, 10 years ago. And essentially what it is, is the uh, uh, you drawing, you draw the things and uh, you donate the drawings. And, you know, anyone can draw the drawings, right? You donate it. And uh, essentially that the people pay to buy the drawings. It's one big party event in, in a way. But it's a big community engagement, for example, in LA. And also we did in Sacramento for the last couple of years now is the, uh, you engage the uh, community. You engage the so-called doodle parties we have. You know, people understand that what is that uh, really 
purpose of this you know particular school or particular you know we did the boys and girls um, uh, club for last year in Sacramento so identify these needs and we talked about it essentially six months one year to six months long and the people themselves actually we don't know those sometimes people they organize doodle parties for particular codes so they create the drawings so so far we I don't know we probably collect at least uh, 3,000 drawings you know for those two different events and this year we're gonna do it again in LA downtown in uh, June. That's what we're looking at, and uh, we're gonna benefit some certain uh, disadvantaged school uh, school age kids. That, that's what we try to do. So that's uh, I mean that's neat. it's identifying a need in, in community engagement to help yeah. connect those dots. So I that's mean, fantastic. You... Then at the point doing that, not only community engagement, also our our people, right? Our, our staff, you know, in all those offices get engaged also same time doing that. So it's really kind of program we have like out of a thousand drawings or the um, uh, global reach programs, you know, to engage our staff, to them to also walk the talk of our mission. You know, that's, that's whole things program like that. And how, I mean, you and your team drove the mission and you're participating in the mission. I mean, how do you split your time? I mean, what, what does like over the last year or so, I mean, what, what does a normal, what's a normal week look like for you? I mean, how, how do you, you know, in order to like keep all these, you know, um, international offices, um, relief efforts, and then projects through different agencies. I mean, how, how, how do you manage it all? Yeah. Oh, I don't manage anything. So that's the whole point, right? Essentially the um, uh, company is always really decentralized very decentralized company flat organizations though i feel it's very decentralized format so i don't really get into the uh main management components of it at all so i usually kind of pick the a certain office or subject or in disaster and kind of deep dive in that kind of format you know like i was i was living in puerto rico for the last you know 12 weeks you know stuff like that pretty much you know in out though and uh, obviously, the, you know, my, my focus is the message and the communication and the branding and the alignment of people to the same you know, vision. And also, as a leader, my job really, you know, quite frankly, help our leaders to make a job easier, hopefully. You know, it's, I don't succeed all the time, but that's my desire to help, you know, others, my, our leaders. So, so, so it's, um, it's, you know, it's not bad. I'm, you know, I, I love traveling. I love interacting with people. I love being at disaster sites. So, you know, quite frankly, I don't get paid out there. I'm still probably doing the same thing. Right. Well, I mean, there's, there's so many leaders and organizations who want to do more as far as leveraging their talent and having more impactful change. And, yeah. um, you know, whether they're going to be able to, you know, transition as, as you know, into, into what you're doing. Um, they want to be able to take steps towards, you know, having more impact. I mean, do you, any advice for leaders or leadership teams that, you know, a year from now, they, they want to have more of a, of a social agenda as part of their business? I mean, any advice mm -hmm. on how to get started? I think, um, long as the leader, you know, or board, you know, that top level is authentic. I think that's a really important part of it. Have to be authentic. If you're not into the purpose, if you're not into the mission, don't do it because it's become a, it's not really a good idea. Have to be really authentic about it. Authenticity is so critical because if you're so driven to do something good to others and you're making the right decisions, you know, 
it works. But if we just feel like, okay, this seems like it has a lot of profit associated with it. And it's true. Purpose-driven company makes more money than uh, non-purpose-driven. That's so true. But if you have motivations like that, or purpose-driven company is much more efficient business form, so therefore I'll be purpose-driven company, it doesn't work. So I think at the first have to look within ourselves, leadership group. Are we really purpose-driven? Are we really want to do something good to others? Are we ready to not to make any money doing that? Are you ready to put money on a risk doing that? Answers yes, yes then I think you should go for it. It would be very, very successful. Right. Are, are you ready to get that call from the board of, member of the board of directors? <laughs> <laughs> right. Kid, you spend 400,000 bucks. You're about to get fired. I'm okay with it. Then the answer is yes. <laughs> so, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground and I'm, I'm real thankful that you were here just to, to share your story, um, mm -hmm. Miyamoto International, the firm and, and Miyamoto Relief and, and what you're doing, because I think it's a, a real encouragement for others and, and your commitment to the mission and, and then making things work on the business side. I mean, we, we've just touched into that, but, but you're right. I mean, purpose-driven companies are more profitable and you've been able to continue to grow in open offices. So, um, you know, that's an important component in addition to the, the work and really changing lives. But is yeah. there anything else that we have, you know, as we, we close, is there anything else that you'd like to share or add that we haven't touched on? Well, what is really excite excitement right now is the development. Like, you know, your group, Peter, and, uh, you know, two other companies, you know, went to the Omo Valley, Ethiopia. It's pretty amazing. So what this is, is the, um, um, uh, I mean, I went to Ethiopia about a year ago, and we saw this huge needs. The, uh, um, uh, there's this, this tribe called uh, Kara tribe, about 3,000 people living in it, and has the, the distinct language group, distinct culture, living there for thousands of years. No one knows. And people or government built a huge dam upstream. Well, dam is a progress. It's good, right? Flood control. Sure. That means... For that tribe, no more annual flood, which means they are essentially starving for the last, what, four years now, Peter, something like that, right? Four mm -hmm. years. Yes. And uh, people are, you know, just leaving that village and it could be end of uh, this particular civilization. But solution is actually pretty simple. They already figured out solution, right? Have a solar panel, solar powered, this uh, irrigation system, something very simple. And so we saw that. But, you know, being a structural engineer, I have no idea. Those pumping system irrigation, what does that mean, you know? <laughs> so, you know, I had a, happened to be in a Zwag uh, group conference and we made a, a talk about this and we uh, even organized, organized, even flew in uh, this uh, elder man from this tribe and he made a pitch. And three companies, Peter, your company, and two others, three of you guys decide, you, you guys are experts, you know? Water, irrigation, development, all the experts in it. And they went to the Ethiopia this uh, early January. And you guys got this incredible solution. And actually, one of the pump, I understand, started working already. Right. You know, that's pretty amazing. That's incredible. It was you an know? incredible trip. And I was thankful that, you know, and it's just your... Um, your heart and your mission. And I was in this place in Ethiopia and I'm a structural engineer, but it needs solar expertise and land development and electrical and, and irrigation. And, you know, hey, I need some help on this. Let, let, let's help this tribe. But it was a phenomenal experience being able to yeah. go and really is, I mean, we met multiple times with the elders and, and it, yeah. it's a community driven for a real need. I mean, you know, 
nature made a way for these tribes for millennia to be fed and it was annual flooding you know uh, in the in the name of progress and it, it is great progress there's a dam well nature's nature's source of food was gone so what are we going to yeah. do so and, and so it was a it was a great experience but i mean it's so it's even so your relief efforts go well beyond just structural damage um and, and you, you're inspiring other people to to really make a real difference in the lives of others yeah that's actually such a cool cool development so by the way listeners you know uh, we ask uh, how much more do we need like uh what's not much like about five hundred thousand dollars for this trial yeah. or something like that about like less, that, right? less than a half a million dollars to to provide um, irrigation water for for five villages of a tribe and, and use that as a prototype to help many other tribes and and you know a couple hundred thousand people in the in that in that whole yeah. Omo Valley area. Yeah, that's uh, that's it. We need to do it. You know, I think that's a really important one. This summer, it's the construction started because they got flat season per se this summer. So one world's working. We just need to have the other um, uh, irrigation system to work in. So $500,000. So if it's anyone interested to be a part of this, especially fundraising components, you know, if you visit the Miyamoto Relief, Miyamoto Global Disaster Relief website, there's definitely a donation spots there. Time and money. Right. As we, uh, how, 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 uh, how else can, you know, you mentioned those website links and we'll include all that in the show notes. Um, are there any other ways that people can get in touch with you to learn about, you know, what you're doing and, and the opportunities they have to support the projects that you're working on? Sure. Just email me, kit at miyamotointernational.com. I'll, I'll reply back to you. <laughs> it's no problems. <laughs> Simple. Well, excellent. Well, I, I want to thank you again for, for coming on the podcast and sharing sure. and really, you know, hopefully inspiring, you know, leaders to take that, you know, to think about, you know, how they can leverage their expertise and, and their, their caring and the work that we do in the community, because we work in communities every day supporting safety yeah. and welfare. And, you yeah. know, how, how do we expand that just beyond our projects to really, you know, make more of an impact? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that uh, being a, engineers you know I, I think it's really it's a super exciting thing uh, sometimes we don't talk about what we do uh, what we do is a so so inspirational to me you know and um i think uh, this kind of communication is really critical and i think it's very important to keep uh, keep at what we do every day well, great well again thank you and i look forward to connecting again yeah most definitely peter thanks man really appreciate it it's great right. talk Take care. Uh, yeah, I will. Bye. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to get us established. And I truly appreciate that. It also helps get the word out so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others both inside and beyond our organizations. So thank you. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.